BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, credit card rewards. They're a common way for banks and card issuers to attract new business, points for a free hotel stay or free flight with airport lounge access. But who pays for these perks? It turns out we all do. And those who don't use credit cards or often pay in cash, typically low-income consumers, get the worst deal, subsidizing those rewards for wealthier consumers. We look at how the system works, efforts to address the inequities, and hear from you. What do you want to know about your credit card rewards program? Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You've probably seen the credit card offers urging you to sign up and get points, airline miles, or hundreds of dollars cash back on your purchases. Demand for these rewards has grown dramatically in the last few years, and the perks are getting more elaborate as banks and companies compete to be your card of choice. But the growth of rewards cards has come at a cost, especially to those least likely to afford or benefit from them. We look at how in this hour of forum, and joining me is Chen Zishu, Assistant Professor of Finance at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, whose New York Times op-ed last month is called the Dirty Little Secret of Credit Card Rewards Programs. Professor Shu, welcome to Forum. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. It's great to have you. Speaking to the popularity of these cards, you say it was around 2016 with the introduction of the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card that set off a credit card perks war. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, um, so... The bank Chase um, decided to introduce a new credit card that had just, quite frankly, an insane sign-up bonus. It, um, I believe, ultimately was valued at something like over $1,000 just to use their card. And so many people signed up that they actually ran out of those metal slabs that uh, that they print the cards on. After this, I think the success of the card, you know, the fact that so many people began using it, made many other credit card issuers realize that there was a quite large, potentially untapped market of high spending consumers who could be, you know, enticed to use their cards 
as long as the rewards were sufficiently um, compelling. And since then, you know, we've seen American Express introduce a new uh, card. Many, um, so Capital One recently introduced its own version of the, you know, the premium travel card and many such examples like this. Yeah. And, and you cited some recent data from the Federal Reserve about just how much we are now using these cards in 2022. How much has it changed? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think credit card uptake has certainly grown with the, um, with these, um, with these rewards cards. It's also, I think, put more prominently in the consumer's mind, this idea of, hey, I should pay for some of my purchases with this card that gives me better rewards. Um, and in fact, I should stop using my debit card, for instance, and start using my credit card, because that just, um, you know, that gives me all these benefits that um, I would like to have. Yeah. And so, these rewards, though, are not cheap. They do come at a cost, and they do cost the credit card companies. They need to pay for these rewards. So how do they how do they do that? How do they make that profitable? Yeah, it's a great question. So the structure of these rewards usually has a component that's a sign-up bonus um, and a component that's basically a kickback for every purchase that you make. So, for example, the Chase uh, Sapphire uh, preferred card, I believe, um, or no, the Chase Sapphire Reserve card gives you something like three percent cash back, or sorry, three percent back in term in the form of points for every dollar you spend at a restaurant, for example. The way they fund that three percent is that every time you swipe your credit card, the merchant is going to be pay uh, be charged a fee. So. Let's take, for example, a 4% fee. Three, um, that fee, overall fee, 4%, is what we would call interchange. And some of that fee goes to maintaining the services that a credit card network provides. So, you know, Visa, MasterCard, they provide lots of valuable services that are good for consumer protection. For instance, uh, fraud protection, purchase protection. But the rest of that 3% is actually automatically rebated back to the consumer. So mechanically, your rewards are funded by the store that you're purchasing whatever um, uh, whatever you're buying from. Now, because this means stores are basically facing, uh, we can call it like a 4% tax from the fact that you're paying with a credit card, they're going to want to pass on that cost. And so what they tend to do is they'll raise their prices across the board. And so anyone who's not paying for a with a credit card is implicitly paying for these rewards through the fact that they're paying higher prices. It, well, basically, it sounds like we're all paying higher prices because if the merchant yep. is passing on the increase in the swipe fee uh, by making the cost of their goods more, then we're all paying for it. But it sounds like those of us who have credit card rewards end up getting at least some of that back, right? <laughs> In exactly. Terms of the that's, perk. But that's people, precisely right. 
Yes. Right. But people who do not have these cards or benefit from these cards are getting nothing. They're just getting that higher cost paid onto them. And can you just talk a little bit about who those people tend to be, people who don't have these rewards cards? Right. So um, in general, credit cards are used more by high income earners. Um, this is for a number of reasons. There's, um, you know, they are a line of credits, so they require that you have a certain credit score, uh, for example, a FICO score. A FICO score isn't completely correlated with income, but on average, higher income families are much more likely, or higher income individuals are much more likely to be able to obtain and to want to use a credit card. And then you can layer on that the other dimension of these high rewards credit cards, which are geared towards very high earning individuals, um, you know, people who travel a lot, who eat out a lot. And once we're in that dimension, you know, you need mechanically, you need a FICO score that's above 700 to even qualify for one of these credit cards. So the better the rewards are, the more likely it is that it's a high income individual who is using that card as opposed to a low income individual. And then more generally, all credit cards will skew towards higher income. Hmm. We're talking about credit card rewards programs and who really pays for them with Chen Zi Xu of Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation did you know this <laughs> that this <laughs> that the cost of these rewards are basically funded by interchange fees that merchants pay and merchants pass on the cost to you and everybody else usually in the form of higher prices and if so how does that make you feel? Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. I'd like to bring into the conversation now Aaron Klein, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, so hearing about these interchange fees, I imagine that they are some portion of the profit that banks or card issuers um, get. But I always thought that the bulk of the profit for credit cards and for credit card companies and issuers were things like interest that's paid on carrying a balance from month to month or late fees if you didn't pay it on time. How how much do they rely on these interchange fees for their profit? Oh, so this is one of the great changes that most of the listeners I think are unaware, at least in my experience, when I talk to people, I can't tell you how often I talk to, you know, upper middle class, well-off people who go, oh, well, I'm a loss leader. The credit card companies make no money on me because uh, I pay it off every month. And I say, you're their most profitable customer. Why do you think they keep giving you solicitations in the mail? Do you think these companies are stupid and they're trying to lose money? No, they're targeting you. You know, some years, Amex makes, American Express makes about 85% or more of their profit on swipe fee, on interchange fee. Chase Sapphire, uh, as Professor Zhu points out, is targeting people who don't carry balances, Is target are targeting people who make a lot of money, who pay on time, but who charge a lot. So the credit card market is highly segmented. But up the ladder, the goal is to find people who don't carry balances. So 
the majority of profits for card offers to what, what I'd call super prime customers, customers with very high credit scores, are, are all based on interchange. That's mm -hmm. that's the game here. The game isn't, look, there are, there are $35 late fees, which have nothing to do with the cost to the company. They're just trying to squeeze people who are, you know, uh, uh, unlucky as it relates to their paycheck day or, you know, living on the edge or, you know, occasionally just forget. Uh, th that's a squeeze job that pads profits. But the engine of this system is swipe fee. Wow. And so we're such huge swipers. We we use credit cards so often. They make a lot of money off of us. Chen Shu, how does the U.S. compare when it comes to the fees, the swipe fees, compared to, say, other countries? So the U.S. Um, fees are much, much higher than you see in the world on average. So the EU has regulated interchange fees to be quite minimal, to essentially cover the cost of operating the network and um, to cover the cost of what I mentioned earlier, which is some you know, basic consumer uh, protection. That means that if you look at EU credit cards, um, they're not going to have any of these rewards because the rewards are funded by interchange and interchange has been regulated down to being quite minimal. In other places, um, you know, there is often more of a norm for interchange to be passed back directly to the customer. So we could live in a world where every time we swipe our credit card, um, if MasterCard is going to charge the merchant 3%, actually that just gets added to our bill. But that is not the norm that we live in in America. Hmm. We'll talk more about how credit card rewards programs work and who really pays for them. After the break, we're talking with Chen Zishu, Assistant Professor of Finance at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and Aaron Klein, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. And we're talking with you, listeners. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What do you want to know about credit card rewards programs and who really pays for them? Perhaps as you travel for a spring break or get ready to this summer? You can ask your questions by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Tell us what do you want to know about the program, but also if you have questions about how banks make money from the credit cards they offer, what are your reactions to what you're learning about who ultimately pays for the cost of these kinds of perks and rewards? Let me go to caller Jim in Saratoga. Hi, Jim. You're on. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to point out that, you know, consumer beware on these credit cards. I run two businesses with two different business models. Uh, One, we bake in the prices for these credit cards. So we charge, let's say, 5% over to cover credit card fees. Um, And the other, we we charge uh, the consumer pays it up front. The California DMV um, legally charges a fee. So if one is to use these rewards cards, on that website, it says we're going to charge you 2 or 3%. I don't know what that uh, fee is. Uh, but essentially, the consumer is paying for it themselves uh, in just higher prices. And it does come at the cost of, as your experts point out, um, individuals who can't afford these cards. Uh, and it kind of breaks the back of, uh, you know, uh, low wage earners uh, that use, the, the, use credit in businesses across the board where the fees are baked in, uh, meaning they charge, you know, three, four, five percent higher prices just to cover that cost. So, you know, consumer beware. I, we're, yeah. we're all paying for it. The bank is not giving this away for so, free. So, Jim, it sounds like you yeah. understand this. Well, Aaron, is that you go right ahead? Yeah, I, I was going to say you're you're entirely right on. And just to point out one more thing that exacerbates this problem when you get that 3% cash back, you don't pay taxes on it, you the wealthy consumer, right? So this is actually a tax-subsidized form of regressivity in the payment system. That is, the payment system charges lower-income people more, gives the money to richer people, and has the added bonus of not charging taxes on this. This is because when these rewards started, like frequent flyer points in the 80s, It was hard for the IRS to kind of try to value what that was. Now, I think it's pretty clear what 2% or 3% cash back is, right? When you get a check at the end of the year from your credit card company, say you charge $100,000 and they send you three grand, that pretty clear how much that is worth, but that's not taxed. So on a pre-tax basis to an actual worker trying to go and make that money into their bank account, that's like an extra four. $4,500, $5,000 on a pre-tax basis. So not only is the system regressive, as as, uh, the caller points out, but that there's a hidden tax advantage to running it this way, uh, which is actually comes into play quite a bit for small businesses. You know, 80% of businesses, small businesses in America have no employees. And people see lots of credit card offers targeting the business use your business card this way, your business card this way. And so businesses can start to get quote unquote profit, just churning inventory and not even pay taxes on it if it's done through credit card rewards rather than booked as income. Well, Jeff writes, yeah, go ahead, Shu, go ahead. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to make one comment, which is that when we make 
purchases with a credit card, it is using post-tax income. And so to then tax it again would be double taxation. So I no, but but it's it's not a question of yes, you're using it with post-tax. Look, there's double taxation all through capital gains, et cetera. But the point is when American Express sends you a three thousand dollar check in the mail, if they were any other employer, you would pay taxes on three thousand dollars of income. Right. Right. But, you know, if I got a check from my bank for dividends on the money in my savings account, I pay taxes on that dividend check from my bank. But if the bank sends it to me as a credit card reward, I don't. I think it's much more comparable to, for instance, using a coupon and some consumers have access to this coupon and others don't. We also don't pay taxes on basically the money we save on a coupon, for instance. Right, but coupon has a tremendous problems with administering it, right? How in the world would the IRS ever know how many coupons you used at the cash register, right? But here, the cash register itself is a coupon for the wealthy, only for the wealthy. I, well, I, I agree with you, you it, that there are distributional issues with credit cards, but I just think the taxation point is a little bit uh, tangential. Uh, is it is it core? No. But when you when you ask yourself, why are these rewards blowing up? Why do they keep getting bigger and bigger? And there are a lot of reasons. There's a bad Supreme Court case or other things, but it's the same in health benefits or anything else. When you create a system in society where you can give money to people tax-free versus giving money to people that are taxed, it tilts the playing field. And for the wealthy, income tax, state tax, federal tax, 30 40% sometimes as high as 50, depending on where you are in the country. So, you know, is it core? No, but tangential? I'm not so certain about that. Well, certainly it plays into the fact that there are huge inequities in our financial system. And this is yet another example of how those inequities are exacerbated, what you're describing, which is which is really how even what we're talking about with regard to credit card rewards programs is just a piece of those broader issues related to the inequities. Uh, listener Brandon is on the line from Redwood City. Brandon, you had a question. What's on your mind? Good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And uh, I just wanted to ask, what about solutions? Let's think about solutions. I mean, I think everybody can agree that, in my opinion, uh, rising inequality is one of the most insidious and divisive, uh, corrosive effects in a country. So if we see things like this that are regressive, yet people who are progressive and want to address it, you know, like AOC or Sanders, people like that are labeled as far left. Like, what can you do to counterbalance this? I mean, real quick example. I mean, I, I believe that a $70 ticket is not the same penalty to someone earning 50 grand as a housekeeper, let's say, as a hedge fund manager earning, say, 500 grand. It's the same $70, but it is effectively, in terms of relative cost, 10 times more expensive for the housekeeper. So I feel like we should take account and, and things like tickets and, and things should be scaled to the value of the car they're driving. That would not involve the IRS. That would be a solution. I just want to hear your so guess. Let me, yeah. let me give you think? guys. I, I let think, me give you Brandon, a, thank you for the call. And uh, Chenzi, you wanted to weigh in? Yes. Um, so I think the easiest solution is just to pass on the cost directly to the consumer who's getting the benefit. If I'm swiping a card that charges the merchant 4%, it's very fair for that cost just to be passed back onto me directly in the sales price. 
then the merchant would not have an incentive or a need um, to raise prices for everyone. As our previous caller pointed out, that's how it works in practice. This would be a very direct way to adjust for the fact that some of us get reward card points and others of us don't. This is also a much more direct way to equal the playing field than, for instance, interchange regulation, which can just lead banks to raise fees in other ways in order to figure, you know, to be as profitable as they were before. And, you know, the ways that they find to raise fees in other ways tend to also be costly to lower income households. Well, Tenzi, this listener uh, writes, here in Point Arena, many merchants post signs that tell customers that if they choose to use a credit card, the store will add the cost of the card to their purchase so everyone else isn't paying higher prices. I'm guessing, though, that that's not the norm, um, Aaron Klein, or that there are reasons why that would be hard, especially for a small business to do. So a few things. Sometimes that's just in violation of the contract with the merchant. With, with the credit card processing, you know, you have to sign a contract when you process these card fees. And often those contracts say you can't do surcharges. Now, sometimes you can offer cash discounts, but a discount is different than a surcharge and how you advertise it. So when you see those little signs posted, you know, no cards under $5 or $10 minimum, those the, that's kind of not really fully legal. Uh, but we don't quite have an enforcement regime where the card... Uh, uh, companies are sending people into the little bodegas or dry cleaners and enforcing that. But I want to turn to a solution that I thought had a tremendous amount of promise. Um, The state of Ohio passed a law that said that merchants could didn't have to take all cards. So in the card processing agreements that I just referenced, these uh, Amex, MasterCard say, if you take one of our cards, you have to take all of them. So you can take no Visa uh, credit or no American Express, but if you take one, you have to take all. And that allows the card companies to keep segregating and slicing and making fancier and fancier and higher, higher income rewards and allows these rewards to get bigger and bigger. The state of Ohio said, wait a second, we want to let merchants pick which they want. And they invalidated that part of the contract, giving merchants the power to say, you know what? You can use a Visa, just not a Sapphire. You can use a American Express, just not a Platinum or, or double black card. That got sued and American Express litigated it all the way to the Supreme Court, who in 2018, in this horrible case, Amex v. Ohio, decided five to four in favor of American Express, Judge Clarence Thomas in the majority. It's one of those cases where had the Republicans not stolen a Supreme Court seat that Merrick Gartland was nominated for at the end of the Obama presidency, the court would have probably found five to four in the other direction and empowered merchants. Congress still has the ability to write a law and overturn that court case and empower merchants to put the brakes on some of these luxury cards. I, I have a, you know, if 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 Tiffany... If uh, Louis Vuitton or or, or high-end retail stores want to accept high-end cards, there's going to be a lot less price cross-subsidization than when you see these across the board at every every store. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I have a little bit uh, a different solution that could work, except for this 
horrible Supreme Court case. Mm-hmm. Well, Chenzi, are there efforts at the congressional level to do something like Ohio tried to do in Amex v. Ohio or other legislative solutions that are being proposed to try to get a handle on, on some of the way that these credit card rewards programs are essentially hurting us all, but particularly low-income consumers? Yeah, so um, after the you know financial crisis and the Great Recession, uh, there were so, there was a financial uh, regulation passed called the Durbin Amendment that regulated debit card interchange fees. So debit card interchange fees are have historically always been less than these luxury card fees, but were on average around two percent. And Durbin um, basically regulated the vast majority of debit card fees to being twenty two cents, so much lower. Um, there's some really nice research by a professor at Yale, Natasha Saran, and her co-author, uh, Vladimir Mukhlarov um, <laughs> at uh, Georgetown, where mm-hmm. they studied, uh, where they were precisely interested in the distributional effects of this, uh, this amendment. And basically what they found was that, you know, if debit cards were really important, and now the you know, the cost of using them is less, the merchants do lower their prices, and this is good for people, but this wasn't true across the board. And the other thing is banks did raise their fees in other ways so that they recouped these losses. So at the end of the day, consumer welfare wasn't that much different. So I think the concern with broad interchange regulation is that it doesn't end up having the effect that it intends. I think Ultimately, what Aaron described was is a very reasonable thing um, uh, legislation, which is that you know a accepting visa is not necessarily the same as accepting visa signature, right? Visa signature is the one that comes with all of these extra perks and is also the one that costs way more interchange. So that would be um, a way to mm-hmm. essentially pass on, again, the fees to those who would actually benefit from the rewards. Well, Emma writes, speaking of debit cards, as you brought up, Chenzi, I use my local credit union rewards card for everything, so I definitely participate in this system. But perhaps it's a little better using a local bank. But my question is, isn't the swipe charge the same if we use a debit card via the visa system, et cetera. For instance, my debit card is a visa debit card. It seems like the only way to avoid the swipe is to pay cash. Is that correct, Aaron? No. So so, so herein lies the, the details. Uh, this is like <laughs> an onion, right? And I don't mean to make people cry, but as part of the Durbin Amendment, uh, the, the professor points out there was an amendment to the Durbin Amendment called the Tester Amendment. And the tester amendment said, well, you know, these high fees on on uh, 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 debit cards are important for small banks. So they carved out uh, this rate regulation that moved it down to about 25 cents. Um, they carved out for small banks. So small banks can charge more up to about 50 cents. So from the merchant's point of view, they often, you know, just because you're giving them a debit, their fee may be different. When we were working on the Durbin Amendment uh, in 2010, it was passed as part of the broader Dodd-Frank Act, although Senator Dodd uh, actually voted against the Durbin Amendment. Uh, Crafting legislation is a point of compromise. I was Senator Dodd's chief economist for a period of time, and rarely do you get everything you want, even in your namesake bill. 
Uh, but at the time in 2010, there were none of these fintechs. So now a lot of people use a financial technology company. Think of somebody like Chime or other folks who actually partner with a bank and that bank issues a card. And people often think of the financial tech, the fintech, the app as their bank, but it's not, it's a, it's a pass-through. And the fintechs target the community banks to be their partners because they can get a higher swipe fee. And then that creates a different economic incentive. So it gets incredibly confusing, but the, the, the other element that's very important to appreciate in debit uh, is that, you know, a, 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 a half to 60% of Americans don't have $1,000 in their bank account. And a lot of them go near zero. And for about one in 12 Americans, they frequently hit zero and get dinged with an overdraft. Overdraft fees are usually about 35 bucks. For this one in 12 Americans whom are called heavy overdrafters, they get 10 or more a year, 350, 400, $500 a year in overdraft. They never quite know when, in part because we have a really horrible payment system operated by the Federal Reserve that moves money slowly and erratically. Anybody who tried to make deposit a check on Friday may well have gotten hit with an overdraft over the weekend as their money sat in purgatory come April 1st. Some banks do post debits before credits, uh, and it gets very, very confusing. But the end result is for debit card users, sometimes there are all these hidden fees in the form of overdrafts that make them want to use cash because they don't know when they swipe something at the cash register if there's enough money in their account to settle it or not. So it, it, it's very confusing there, but I, I would focus less on big bank, small bank, and more focus on cash, debit, prepaid, credit, and luxury credit. And I think the professor does a very good job of pointing out the explosive growth of luxury credit. You know, think of it as as a, a, a 800 pound gorilla sitting on, an, on a teeter-totter that's already pointed towards the wealthy. Well, John writes, can you speak about the right to pay in cash, please? In the UK, it is projected that it will be a cashless society within four or five years. Surely we have the right to pay with cash. Requiring credit card or debit card seems to be unconstitutional. We're coming up on a break, Aaron, but really quickly, we this movement to a digital society where there are entities that don't take any cash at all, surely this is also exacerbating the problem. I believe in the right to pay cash, but keep in mind, you know, Uber doesn't take cash, Amazon doesn't take cash, the online and gig economy can structurally not always take cash. So it's not just about merchants. America charges the poor and working people a tremendously high amount to digitize their money. The UK and other countries have much cheaper uh, and subsidized systems to allow people to digitize their money. Mm, more after the break. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Chen Zi Xu, assistant professor of finance at Stanford Graduate School of Business, who wrote a piece, an op-ed in the New York Times last month called The Dirty Little Secret of Credit Card Rewards Programs. Aaron Klein is also with us, senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, former deputy assistant secretary for economic policy at the Department of Treasury from 2009 to 2012 under President Obama as well. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments about our financial system, particularly with how it relates to credit cards and credit card rewards programs. And this listener writes, we know that we all end up paying more for using credit cards and that those who have the least are impacted the most. But we exist in a society that values a credit score. So how can we participate and build credit while not causing harm to others? We've talked a little bit, Chen Zi, about sort of the solutions that have tried to to happen on the level of state and even federal government. But are there other individual solutions that you would want to bring up? Or, or even if you have any thoughts about how responsible the individual is in all of this? Uh, you know, this is a great point. And especially what you brought up um, about how important it is to build a credit score in the U.S. You know, home ownership is something that depends very much on a credit score and it's something that is a very classic form of wealth accumulation in the U.S. more so than other forms of savings. And it is, in fact, incredibly difficult to get started on the credit ladder without something that looks like, you know, baby credit, which would often come in the form of you know, a low credit limit sort of introductory card. Um, So I do think that consumers on average are better off using credit cards than not, just because there's very little other way to build up a credit score. That being said, um, I think the legislation, especially that Aaron brought up, that would allow merchants to basically compete a bit more on what cards they allow versus don't allow would be key. At the moment, you know, merchants are really very passive in this process. That's because they don't want to have to turn away someone who wants to pay with you know, a Visa signature card. They don't want to lose that business. But if merchants were able to say, actually, we will only take certain cards. Um, This is actually something we've seen at Costco. Costco only takes Visa. They do not take MasterCard. They do not take Amex. They sort of have the bargaining power to be able to say that. In that case, you know, in order for them to be willing to allow their customers to pay with MasterCard, MasterCard would have to bring them a fairly compelling proposition. This is just not the case on average, and particularly not with smaller um, smaller merchants, which is where yeah. regulation would be important. Aaron, I'd love to get your thoughts on 
what the individual's role is here. I mean, do you use a, a rewards credit card? And, and if you do, how do you reconcile that and participate in the system with everything that you know? I, I, I use it. Uh, in fact, I, I, I lock on to brands and, and I'm pretty specific and intentional uh, in that. Uh, look, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a problematic practice and I justify my participation in it in part by my work against it. Uh, but, you know, as, as, as it exists, I'm, I'm certainly participating and I'm, you know, reaping the benefits from it, both because of my uh, position in the socioeconomic status uh, of society and also uh, because I focus on it. I mean, there's a whole website, thepointsguy.com, right? There's a whole ecosystem uh, built into this. Uh, so, you know, maybe part of my justification is my very work to dismantle the system that uh, is, is propping me up. Well, Linda writes, merchant fees do not entirely go to rewards. Rewards are only a portion. Reward cards with low or no fees are available to all. As someone who has worked my way up, it has helped me save money. You just have to use them carefully and pay your bill each month. I know we talked earlier, Gen Z Shu, about how they aren't available to all. But do you have any thoughts on what Linda is saying? Well, I think um, it's important to realize that these rewards are funded by transactions, not by fees. So it's not coming out of the fact that, you know, some people are making late credit card payments. It's every time you swipe, you're charging a fee to a merchant. So I think it's important for people to realize that it's not something where users can say, well, I'm not the kind of user who's participating. If you're using a credit card, you are participating. And that's, it's as simple as that. Erin, can you talk a little bit about how all of this is happening at a moment when interest rates are very high, when we're seeing reports um, as of late last year that we are carrying way more debt as a country than ever? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you talk about this market, a lot of what we're talking about are the high-end rewards cards, which are targeted to people who pay their bill off every month in full. As we know, many American families carry thousands of dollars on their credit cards. They're called revolvers or heavy revolvers since credit card debt doesn't amortize. It doesn't pay off like your mortgage or your, your car loan, right? You just can kind of float around making the minimum forever and never make any headway. Uh, in fact, credit card debt fell uh, during COVID, when a lot of people use their stimulus payments to put their money and pay down their balance, but then inflation kicked in and the payment stopped and credit card debt has risen and surpassed the pre-pandemic high. The cost of carrying all that debt shoots up sharply as these interest rates are variable. Uh, they come in kind of out of the blue. So as interest rates rise, the consequences to carrying your debt are even greater and the folks there uh, are hit more. So on a higher interest rate society, it exacerbates these problems. It's not like what you have been raising about this system in which wealth is basically redistributed, or not wealth is redistributed, but basically that lower income folks end up kind of distributing wealth to the wealthier among us, right? There's, there is that redistribution system from that direction. 
Um, and, and so it's not like you have not raised the issue of all the systems that contribute to that, Aaron, for years. I guess what I'm curious about is, are you finding that what has seemed to kind of fly under the radar with regard to um, credit card programs subsidizing where the poor are subsidizing the wealthy and various other systems that are similar, that that is becoming more apparent and clear now to society and that we are starting to respond to it better? Uh, I, I don't I don't know if I don't know if we're responding it to it better. I mean, I think the system is kind of on autopilot and it's it's keeps getting worse. The topics are raised, uh, but I haven't really seen anything to structurally lean in. Look, there are countries that really have solved this problem, as a professor pointed out in Europe, another one in China. Uh, the cards never took off in China because the merchants refused to pay the fee at all. And then Alipay and WeChat Pay, basically Chinese Amazon and Chinese Facebook, came in and digitized money and offered their companies who took their money a no-fee process, particularly if they left their money in the platform. So think about a business that takes your payments uh, in Amazon money, digital money, and then, you know, uh, anything they want to buy on Amazon for their own supplies or anything you want to buy on Amazon and your own supply is, is a payment. There's no charge in the ecosystem. Those are very different ways to run the system. Uh, but the Federal Reserve in the United States both regulates the payment systems rules generally and operates their own internal systems and has really shown no interest in helping low-income consumers and tremendous interest in protecting bank profits or protecting the, the, the market share that they have and their deeply antiquated system. Only in America do you deposit a check, your paycheck last Friday, and not have the money available in your account now and get hit in overdraft fees on Saturday, April 1st. And that system is very much designed, operated, and regulated by the Federal Reserve, putting bank profits first. Uh, and letting the consumers that don't have their don't have their money uh, eat a financial literacy pamphlet over the weekend while their bank rack, racks up overdraft fees for their automatic payments that came through on the first. Do you have any thoughts on why we tolerate this culturally, if that's an accurate statement as a country? I think we tolerate it culturally, one, uh, because it's hidden. It's very quiet. You don't see the prices on the register. You don't know. If, if you don't target these rewards, you don't always see what, what it is. Two, aspirationally, we want to be the person with the black card. We want the platinum card. You know, the share of Americans, there's a great statistic about the estate tax, which is something like less than, you know, half of 1% of estates in America pay the estate tax. And you ask somebody, do you think you're going to die with more than 20 million bucks and pay this tax? And they'll say yes. And then you give them this statistic you know, a half of a percent, that's that's how many people. And you got a crazy number, like 20 or 30% still believe that they'll get there. And so one, I do think there's an aspirational element that's a little mm -hmm. different in American society in terms of tolerating an inequality versus that. But I think more structurally, it's just hidden. It's not talked about. Uh, you know, the professor's op-ed was so groundbreaking because the New York Times was devoting precious real estate. I've written op-eds in the LA Times and other places on this. But generally speaking, we kind of ignore it. And it's it, it's a dirty little little secret hidden in plain sight. 
And again, if you want to read Professor Shu's piece, it is called The Dirty Little Secret of Credit Card Rewards Programs. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Kevin writes, as far as long-term solutions, can your guest discuss the U.S. Treasury's research into how we might transition to digital currency? It's my understanding that this would drastically reduce the cost of making payments. I'm wondering if recent resistance no. to a digital dollar from some in Congress is fueled by lobbying from banks who are worried about Not. losing this source of income. Go ahead, Aaron. You got it all backwards. So this whole conversation is about something called a central bank digital currency or CBDC. America has CBDC. Our entire conversation has been about CDBC. It's commercial bank digital currency. When we buy things with our cards, we're not settling in dollars. We're settling in bank dollars. You're settling in the dollars of your bank account. We, we just think about them all as being interchangeable. But we have CBDC, commercial bank. Putting, putting it as a central bank digital currency, uh, the conversations promoted by the Federal Reserve do nothing to fix this problem. In fact, they exacerbate it. Some in Congress have said, well, we should give everybody a direct account at the Federal Reserve. That's an intriguing idea. If you want to have public banking, it moves the world in a very different place, probably too broad to have the conversation. But what the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department have been talking about is being able to let you in your bank have a different digital wallet that has a liability directly of the Federal Reserve, like cash, right? That's what cash is. It's a Federal Reserve note, uh, as opposed to settling in bank currency, but they don't take the bank out of the intermediation at all. And doing this then means the bank can make less money on the money you have in the bank, which then means they're going to have to make their money somewhere else. So I think this conversation about central bank digital currency has been predicated on a fundamental misunderstanding among many people in Washington and in the general public, that these cards aren't commercial bank digital currency, which is exactly what they are. Let me go to caller Arlene in Berkeley. Hi, Arlene. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Nope. Uh, we'll try to connect with Arlene uh, later. Let me go to Carl next. Hi, Carl. You're on. Hi. Um, uh I've been aware of these parasites uh, for many decades, and I do as much as I can uh, with uh, paper checks. What a concept. And uh, $20 bills. What a concept. Well, and I think we may have lost you there, Carl, but I see that Carl is trying to fight what he calls parasitic cards with uh with cash and with checks. But as Aaron was saying, Chen Zishu, it while we are raising awareness um, of how credit cards work, how they their benefits are distributed unequally, that we do continue to, to be moving to more and more of these rewards, more and more of these cards in you know flooding flooding the market, trying to entice people to to use them. Where do you see this going? Well, so this is one of those things where the competition for consumers to use cards is very lucrative. And it's an you know, it's one of those um, settings where, you know, we normally think competition is good for the consumer. The more um, the more people are cons 
competing for users, the better product they'll be able to provide, the better off the consumer will be. And in this particular case, because there's this sort of two-sided thing where merchants are on one side and consumers are on the other side, that's actually not, um, that's not what, you know, competition will get you. It's competition gets you that actually people, the consumer on average is worse off. So the way to make these adjustments so that the cross subsidization that's happening isn't actually profitable is, well, I mean, it may still be profitable for banks, but it just either needs to empower the merchants or it needs to have consumers footing the bill directly. Well, Shannon writes, I hear them saying that the merchants are charged per swipe, but as a small business, I end up writing it off at the end of the year. Am I jaded into thinking that means I'm somehow paying less in fees in the end? No, you're, you're, uh, when you say you're writing it off, you mean it's just part of your costs that goes against your profit any more than you're writing off what you pay your employees. Uh, my oldest friend in life owns a coffee shop in my hometown uh, here in Silver Spring, Maryland. And one day we were talking about, you know, how to improve his business. And he told me he spent more in the prior year in credit card processing fees than he did for coffee. Think about that. The coffee shop was paying more just to process the payments. Now, coffee is a high volume, low dollar situation, exacerbating the problem. You think Starbucks is paying the same amount in swipe fee as bump and grind in Silver <laughs> Spring? which is where I'd recommend a cup of coffee if you're in the neighborhood. No, as the professor points out, Costco, these big box, these big stores cut better deals. So smaller businesses are paying more than the big business and it's a large amount. And just because you're quote unquote writing it off, it just means it's part of your expenses going up against your taxes. On the other hand, if you're a small business owner and you have one of these business cards and you're buying all this stuff for your business, you're probably pocketing the points personally, in terms of tax-free income. Uh, but some of these cards target businesses that shop there. So like a Home Depot card that targets people that shop at Home Depot, it's going to make the economy a little less competitive because you're not going to look at Lowe's for a cheaper price. So there's a lot of pernicious effects of second and third order throughout the economy that this bizarre card payment system is generating. Well, thank you for shedding light on this bizarre card payment system. I'll be totally honest, uh, Aaron and Shenzi. I actually came across your piece, Shenzi, because I'm going to do a lot of traveling this summer and thought, hey, maybe it's time to get a rewards card. And you really made me think again. And I hope at least that's what this did for listeners today. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. This was really great. Kind of fun. And and thank you, Susie Britton and Juan Carlos, for producing today's Juan Carlos Law for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.